know last night in my reading, regular reading and this morning as I was reading and praying and preparing my heart, I was in John chapter 10 where Jesus speaks about his sheep uh, hearing his voice and knowing his voice and uh, others not. And of course at the end of that time they picked up stones to try and stone him. It's a very solemn passage. And I was reminded again of Solomon talking about how his uh, uh, CPR instructor, jovial and happy, suddenly gets very serious. Because they're dealing with death and life issues. And that's exactly what this text did to me this morning as I was praying through it. God's sheep are those that hear the voice of Jesus. And it said to me at least two things. First of all, I prayed for myself and our worship leaders that nothing we say will get in the way of you hearing his voice. But then I prayed for the congregation as well. Because this is a very, there's a joyful gathering, but it's always a very solemn issue to hear God's word. Because nobody goes away the way they came in. (laughs) You go away closer or with a stone in your hand, figuratively speaking. It either softens or hardens. There are sheep who hear his voice and there are those who don't. And so, every Sunday as we gather together, it's that incredible mixture of joy and solemnity. It's the joy of breathing life into that which is dead, but it's the seriousness of what you're doing as well. And I don't want us to miss that this morning. So will you join me as we pray together? Lord, I have prayed already and I pray again. Nothing that I say this morning will obscure your voice in the ears of your people. They don't need to hear me and my clever ideas. They need to hear you speak into the particular circumstances of their life and the condition of their souls this morning. That it might call forth worship. And we plead with you who are rich in mercy to soften hearts this morning. May there be no one who responds by picking up a stone. May every heart here grow softer this morning. That's our plea. That's our desire. In Jesus' name. Amen. For the past three years or so, I've been meeting about three times a year with a group of about eight or nine younger pastors. Um, And we spend about three hours together having lunch and then we just talk about various aspects of ministry. It's part of my ongoing commitment to mentor the next generation. We talk about their personal life, we talk about their ministry life, whatever they want to talk about. A couple of weeks ago was our most recent meeting and with the proximity of Pentecost Sunday, I asked them, I said, so what role does the Holy Spirit play in your life and how do you mediate that in the life of your congregation? So we spent about two hours talking about that and uh, not only was it very interesting, but as I continue to listen and interact with them, um, I had several things that God spoke into my own heart. So really, in one sense, I've got to give credit to nine pastors for this message this morning, along with whatever I, I have done. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, after Easter, he continued to show himself to his disciples. Acts tells us with incontrovertible proofs that he truly was risen from the dead. They, uh, he was allowed, or they were able to see him ascend into heaven. The ascension, of course, underlying the fact that Jesus today is reigning as king and lord of the universe. The angels told him that he's coming back again. And just before he left, he gave them what we call the Great Commission. That forgiveness of sins in my name shall be preached to all nations of the world, beginning in Jerusalem. 
And after telling them that they were going to be his witnesses, he then said to them, but don't go, stay in the city until you receive power from on high, until you are clothed with power. He didn't tell them how long they had to wait. He didn't tell them what form this event was going to take place. He just said, wait. And we know from the story that was read for us this morning, that it was 10 days. That's why it's 50, Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, or their Passover in their case. The Holy Spirit fell upon the people gathered in that room. They were faithful to that mission. And that's why you and I are sitting here today. Gathered from so many different nations. Because that gospel built around the events that happened in that tiny little fishing village in Palestine 2000 years ago has literally gone over the whole world. But why did Jesus tell them not to start their mission until they had the Holy Spirit come upon them? If you read the book of Acts, the subsequent story after that was read for us and all through the epistles, you will find that every dimension of the mission was related to the work of the Holy Spirit. People became Christians only by the power of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit convicted them of the sin of not having believed on Jesus. It was the Spirit that regenerated them and gave them new life and did this uh, cardiac resurrection that Solomon was talking about. It is the Spirit that witnesses with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of the living God and that God is our Heavenly Father. It is the Spirit that conquers sin in our lives as He mortifies the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that illuminates the word of God so we can understand what we are reading. It is the Spirit that according to Romans helps us to pray when we don't even know how to pray and our anguish of our heart is so deep. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us spiritual gifts so we can serve the body and proclaim the gospel to the world. It is the Holy Spirit that gave them power to give credibility to their witness in hostile circumstances by doing signs, wonders and miracles. It is the Holy Spirit that gave them boldness to preach when they were threatened with persecution and even death. And the entire direction of the mission, who should go, where they should go, when they should go, what they should say, all of that was directed by the Holy Spirit as well. So every dimension of the mission was related to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was completely indispensable to becoming Christians, to growing as Christians, to relating to the Lord Jesus Christ and to accomplishing His mission. Today, As individuals and as a local church and as a collection of local churches around the world, we're still on mission. We're still writing the Act 29 chapter of the book of Acts. We are still proclaiming that message of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name from locally all the way to the ends of the earth. The only difference is because of Pentecost, Jesus doesn't say to us anymore, wait until you receive power because we already have received that power. He says this. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Asking is the beginning and the ending word in this text. So it would seem that the first practical response to the reality of Pentecost, in all dimensions of our life, both personal and corporate, is that we have to ask the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to fill us with the Spirit. Now you might say, this is so basic. Well, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you asked for the Holy Spirit specifically? That tells you how basic it is and how often we ignore it. A couple of months ago on Valentine's Day, as I, or 
I preached the message on marriage each year. And this time we talked about why the Holy Spirit was indispensable to living marriages the way God wanted us to. Maybe that's the first place many of us need to do this. Every day, or at least regularly, many times a week, ask the Spirit of God to come into our marriages and in our families. Fathers, husbands, what an incredible privilege to be priests of the home, mediating the Spirit of God into your families. And if you're not married, think of your key relationships and do the same thing. And then, for all of us, what will it look like to ask the Father for the Spirit in the central labor of our lives? Now the central labor of my life is studying and preaching the word of God. Long after whatever retirement looks like, I will not stop these two things for as long as I am alive. It is the central work of my life. Now, I want to take a few moments to share with you how I ask for the spirit to come into the central labor of my life. And it has nothing to do with showing off. You need to know how to do this. And so my reason in telling you this is for you to think about the central labor of your... Every one of you has a central labor in your life. For many of you, it's your jobs. 30, 40, 50 hours a week. You are laboring as well you should. Others are laboring at home. Stay at home moms raising children. Others of you in your retirement years are hopefully laboring in some other meaningful fashion in your communities. So as I walk you through the the shape that it has taken in my life, please make the translations. What will it mean to ask the Spirit to come into your central labor of your life? And for me, there's one controlling metaphor in Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 37. Again, it fits so well with the, with the picture that God gave Solomon. It's a picture, it's a valley of dry bones. And dry bones exposed is, a, is, is for, in the Jewish thinking, defilement. It is a picture of Israel, Judah in exile, defiled because of their sin and hopeless. And God makes Ezekiel walk up and down these bones and ask him, can these, can these bones live? Can these bones live? <laughs> All Ezekiel says, I have the foggiest notion. That's a 21st century translation. I don't know God, you know whether these bones can live. And so God says, okay, now you speak to dead bones. Can you think of anything more meaningless than that? Preach to dead bones, he said. And slowly the dead bones start connected and get all properly connected together. And then he says, preach to them again. And then they're clothed with flesh and with skin. And then he says, preach to them again. And now they become alive and now they rise up into a vast army. It is a magnificent picture of a resurrected hope for the people of God in exile. For me, it has become a controlling metaphor in how I ask for the Spirit of God every week. I've been going through this process, I don't know how many years now. It's too long for me to remember even. But I need to do it because every week I start desperate. But late, sometime on Tuesday and certainly Wednesday morning is the first time I walk my way through my text and it's like walking through dry bones. I don't know whether, how are these going to connect on Sunday. I don't know, Lord. But you know. But I keep walking up and down the bones. And so I ask for the Spirit of God to come and start connecting all these bones together in some way that He wants them to connect. And then that takes pretty well most of Wednesday. It takes a long time for bones to connect. And then Thursday morning is when I start writing the sermon. Now I have to put flesh on it. So I have to ask again for the Holy Spirit of God. And I ask Him to give me words. And there's a passage from Ecclesiastes that has 11 different adjectives for the kind of words a wise teacher should use. They are authentic words. They are wise words. They are truthful words. They are clear words. They are engaging words. They are effective words. They are refreshing words. They are economical words. They are divine words. And they are caring words. And so I walk through each one of those adjectives and ask God on Thursday while I am writing to just breathe life into and put flesh that is made up of these kinds of words. But then comes Friday and Saturday. 
Because until now, there's a beautiful set of skeleton all properly connected together. All the flesh is upon them. But there's no life. Dead. And so I pray on Friday and Saturday for the Holy Spirit to breathe on me a third time. To make what I have to say something living and active and organic. And that I myself will be animated. Not with human ingenuity and cleverness and manipulative techniques. But by the life of the Spirit himself. That's a little bit of how what I go through to ask the Spirit of God to come into the central labor of my life. Now what will that look like for you? It may be different. What if you did that though? What if you thought of your work? I mean it may not flow logically like mine has to from Monday to Friday. Your work may not have connections. Each day may be a different kind of work. But whatever it is, I suspect it looks like dry bones when you start. (laughs) And you need them connected in some way. What if you started envisioning what will it look like if a valley of dry bones were to get resurrected? And just simply ask the Spirit to do that for you. And to saturate the key relationships that are involved in your work. Or in your home with your four children. Talk about dry bones. (laughs) Getting them all connected in some meaningful shape by the end of the week. You need the Spirit. It's the central labor of your life. Students, there's no reason why you can't do this for your exams and for your study work and your colleges and your schools as well. And then do this in your ministries. Small group leaders, family ministry teachers. I do that every week before we lead our small group. God, connect the dry bones together. Put some flesh on them. Bring life to them. Animate us. And then you can continue that kind of asking using poetry and music. Sometimes our own words are not. When, when the metaphors of scripture have, have helped and have been exhausted, I then go to music. This, both old hymns and new songs. I love many of the hymns. I memorize so many of them. As many of you have. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth to all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and make me love thee as I ought to love. Yeah. Has thou not bid me Love thee, God and King, all, all thine own, heart, soul, and strength. You know, I see thy cross that teach my heart to cling. Oh, let me seek thee, owner, let me find. Or the modern one that we just sang, lead me on by the power of your love. A Holy Spirit rained down. You could do worse than just using these words regularly to pray for that central labor of your life. You know, maybe we don't ask, they don't get because we don't ask. James said, you don't get, there's other reasons why prayers are not answered. But the one prayer that will not be answered for sure is the one that you don't pray. So ask, ask for the Spirit of God regularly in your marriages, in your families, and in the central labor of your lives. Now at this point, one of the pastors said, you know, if God really wants to give the Spirit, that's what Jesus said, How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to us? And we're not having the power of the Spirit. Maybe it's because there are some blocks. There's no point praying for the power of the Spirit in our lives if there are things that block the life of the Spirit. And so the second practical implications, I think, is after asking, is also confessing to clear the roadblocks. I'm not talking about a shopping list of sins, but those particular, confessing those sins that the Bible affirms will interfere with the work of the Spirit. And there are at least four of those that I found in the New Testament. Now, not all of us, all the time, to a maximum extent, will be struggling with these. But you will see in a few moments that all of them are relevant to where we are. And one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. So I think it's good for us to regularly ask. So after I have done all this asking, the next thing that I do before I step into the pulpit is to 
Quickly do a rehearsal of these four sins in my life to see if the Spirit says, is there anything in there that you need to confess and get out of the way? Because they might block the power of the Spirit. And if they can block it for me, they can block it for you as well. So let me walk you through each one of them. First of all, I want to begin in an in a unexpected place. Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now I've had Christians with over-anxious consciences come to me and say, Oh, Pastor, have I really committed the unpardonable sin? Well, if you're worried about it, you haven't. You know that for sure. The only people who are only close to God worry about things like that. So that's actually good that you're anxious sometimes. But look at the context. The context tells us what it's all about. And the teach few verses earlier. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, the, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. They, th- this was the unpardonable sin explaining the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life to the devil. And of course, that is by definition an unpardonable sin. The sin of rejecting Jesus cannot be pardoned because the only way you get pardoned is by accepting Jesus. So in one sense it seems quite irrelevant to us. Well, we're not going around busily attributing to the devil the works of, uh, uh, works of God. Although I must say that during the time of the uh, Toronto blessing, there were some Christians that were saying in my view dangerous things. You know. Too quick perhaps to attribute the work of God to the devil. We need discernment. But on the surface it seems irrelevant to us. But what if I were to recast it this way? What if I were to make the bridge to this way? Discounting the Spirit's work through unbelief. Not quite blaspheming against the Spirit. So it's not an unpardonable sin. But a close equivalent to that is discounting the work of the Spirit. Yeah, do I really believe God can answer Isaiah's prayer? To rend the heavens and come down and make your name known amongst us. Is God really able to once again do that resuscitation work? Where he breathes the Spirit of God afresh into us individually. Into Rexdale Alliance Church. Into all the churches in Toronto. In the, in the kind of world in which we live in all over the world. To once again initiate a fresh outward explosion of the proclamation of the gospel with signs, wonders and miracles testifying to the credibility of the gospel. Do we really believe that that can happen? Or have we settled into a resignation with the status quo? I don't know. But if unbelief is there, they couldn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. Unbelief can block the power of the Spirit in our life. The second thing that can block this power of the Spirit, Paul writes in Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So get rid of bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. This is the sin of grieving with the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit through disunity in the body. Now why does disunity grieve the Holy Spirit? Why is this particular sin picked up? Think with me for a moment about Jesus as he was approaching uh, this epoch-making event of crucifixion where he suffered for our sins. What was uppermost on his mind? I'm sure that would give us an indication of the importance of it. Whatever Jesus was thinking and praying about before he went to the cross must be of incredible importance. Well, in John chapter 17, he prays near the end of that prayer. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Jesus praying for us. Everybody who believed through the work of the apostles. That they, all of them may be one. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And a few verses later. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So according to Jesus, unity in the body is crucial for two things. To convince the world that God sent Jesus and to convince the world that God actually loves them the way they love Jesus. In other words, to convince them of the gospel message, the body needs to be united. If Jesus plays such an incredible premium on unity, is it any wonder that fracture in the body grieves the Holy Spirit and has the potential to interfere with his work in our lives. 
So that's the second category of sin. The third category of sins against the Holy Spirit in the New Testament comes from Acts chapter 5, 4 and 5. This beautiful community that was formed as a result of the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit was marked by great power and great grace according to Acts chapter 4. And one of the spectacular works of the Spirit in the early church was to release an amazing spirit of spontaneous generosity. As people who had houses and lands sold them, not because somebody told them to, but because the Holy Spirit moved them, and gave money to the poor. So there was nobody poor among them. In this setting, one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, decided to sell some property that they had and to give that money away. But for reasons only known to them, because the scripture doesn't tell us, after they sold it, they kept back a part of it for themselves, even though they were making it look like they were giving it all. And here's what happened. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? They were, they were only deceiving the people. He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? We didn't ask you to sell it. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It was all yours anyway. We didn't want it even then. But when you went through this deceit, said when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. You can't get a lot more serious than that. Now why did Jesus, God deal with this sin so dramatically? Again the scripture doesn't tell us, but I suspect that in the middle, in a milieu where the Holy Spirit is moving, and great grace and great power was upon the people, and thousands of people were being added to the church, this had the power to quench that, and it was serious business. Further confirmation of this uh, importance of this dimension, the um, sin of greed and, and, and the rationalization by which we support it, which I suspect is why it's called lying to the spirit, that is related to the spiritual power in our lives. Uh, Irvin Lutzer in his book, uh, Flames of Renewal, cataloging the Western Canada revival, talked about how so many people testified that they did not realize the extent to which materialism had a grip on their lives until the time of the revival. And I also remember reading about Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian. Uh, I think he came into the Vatican once and uh, whoever was the Pope at that time said, uh, Thomas, look, pointing to all the treasures of the Vatican, Thomas, look, no longer can the church say silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas is supposed to have responded and no longer can she say in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Aquinas was right, I think. There's an incredible connection between how we handle issues of money and spiritual power. Individually and corporately in the church. So maybe that's the third thing we need to confess. Lying to the spirit to cover up greed and materialism. And the lying for me would be, take the form of rationalizations. Fourthly and finally, First Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20. Do not put out the spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. This is the sin of quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in the context of the... Some of the more dramatic gifts of the Holy Spirit of tongues and prophecy and miracles. And of course some of these were capable of misuse. But Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, don't take the easy way out. Do the hard work of testing all these things to see what is genuine and what is not. Cling on to what is genuine, put aside what is not. Don't take the easy route of just saying, ah, these things are not important anymore. And just downplay them or talk them down and prevent their use in the body of Christ. Well, as I think of the form that it can take today, I think of rigidity in it. 
this quenching the spirit through rigidity that's rooted in fear and pride. Now, there are many things that contribute to rigidity. Sometimes it may just be personality. A guy like me, you know, extreme off the charts on the structured side of the Myers-Briggs, I don't like any change at all. So God gave me somebody who's at the flexible end of the Myers-Briggs spectrum. And that's been good. But it has its downsides, especially in this setting. I can get rigid. I think everything to end when I'm supposed to, you know. Because I've got the rest of the day planned. Fortunately, they say that in revival you lose sense of time, which is good. So I can still pray for that. But seriously, it could be. But more often than not, it can be either fear or pride. Fear, fear is the fear of the unfamiliar. What will happen if God rents the heavens and comes down and does awesome things that we did not expect? What if I don't like that? Because we know for sure that when he does come, it will be something we didn't expect. That's the prayer. Or pride. What I have is good enough. Remember the Samaritan woman when Jesus said, I can give you living water. She said, what's wrong with this? Well, my father's drank from it for umpteen years. That's good enough for me. Or when Naaman was told to cleanse in the river Jordan, he said, are not the rivers of Abana and far, far back home much better than these dirty rivers of Jordan? So sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's pride. And through a combination of those two, there can be rigidity that quenches the work of the Spirit. And you know, this is particularly important for pastors and leaders because in a church setting, we can be the ones most susceptible to fear and pride. Fear because, oh, people might get upset, people might leave, numbers might go down, offerings might go down, you know. We want to stick to the tried and true and scotch anything that looks unfamiliar. As opposed to flexibility to make room for the spirit. And as far as pride is concerned, the leader's vulnerability, pride hardly needs any elaboration. In that same book, Flames of Renewal, Lutzer tells an amazing story about uh, the church actually, the revival actually started in a small Baptist church in Saskatoon, a thing called Ebenezer Baptist Church. And there was a very large church in that city, and the pastor was very well known. In the book he even names him. You know. uh, and that pastor didn't want any, he didn't like all this stuff. So he deliberately scheduled a whole week of special family life meetings in his church, and then followed that up with a week of missions conference, and already booked a missionary speaker, so his people couldn't go anywhere near Ebenezer Baptist Church. Fear? Pride? I don't know. Probably both. But to his credit, he got extremely uneasy about what he was doing. So he called all the elders together and said, this is wrong. So they canceled the special meeting. They canceled the missions conference. And he told his people, go. That public decision unleashed a wave of support for the revival in the whole city. The revival in Ebenezer Baptist Church got so big they couldn't fill the place. So they had to move to a larger church. Guess which church they moved to? Now, What would have happened if that pastor had clung on in rigidity and pride? God's reviving work would not have stopped. He can find anybody to do his work. But he and his church might have missed out tremendously. That's the difference between a rigidity that is rooted in fear and pride and a flexibility that is rooted in faith and a desire to have more of God no matter what may happen. And again, uh, Lutzer catalogs the fact that in many churches during that revival, the turning point, which is when the revival hit the local church, was when the leaders of that church got up and publicly confessed their sins, especially of pride. And, and so for the congregation as well, because pride is not a priority of just leaders, although they have to watch out for it more. Many, many people would confess at the altar. 
that the power of long standing sins in their life was only broken when they humbled themselves to publicly confess that which is what god been teaching us in rexel for the last 2 3 years right from solemn assembly breaking the power of sin by horizontal confession and dealing with the power of pride in our life all right so there we have certain back of you we ask god for the spirit and we confess these four blocks to the work of the spirit discounting the spirit grieving the spirit lying to the spirit and quenching the spirit and because the spirit does the work of conviction let's ask him on a reg- as regularly as we need to ask we need to regularly ask him lord jesus show me there's any one of these four things lurking in my life you know now what 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 comes next after that if you if we have dealt honestly with these blocks and if god doesn't show us anything now that's fine if he does we deal with it if we keep asking then the third thing is important we need to expect we need to expect the spirit to move you know jesus told his disciples you wait something's coming now what do you think was their primary mood when they all come together unbelief skepticism i don't think so they just spent 40 days with the risen jesus their hopes that had been completely shattered on good friday was spectacularly resurrected on resurrection they spent time with him for 40 days they were allowed to see him ascend and the angel said come on go home now he's coming back in a while you go and do the work wait they, i think they must have waited in tremendous expectation every day because they were absolutely certain something was going to happen the resurrected lord jesus said it. it wasn't an issue of unbelief they were expecting and again in the, the for the first place uh, the first area in which this speaks to me is again in the central labor of my life for having prayed along the lines that i have suggested to you from ezekiel 37 having confessed i need to then make sure i step into this pulpit every weekend with expectation many years ago an old english scottish preacher by the name of james stewart wrote a book called heralds for god and in that he has a picture of a pastor who's lost his excitement and i this is a little paragraph but i memorized it because every week i pray that i will be the exact opposite because speaks to expectation he said no longer does the zeal for god's house devour him No longer does he mount the pulpit steps in thorough expectancy that Jesus Christ will come amongst his folk that day traveling in the greatness of his power mighty to save. No longer do lyrical assurances of the resurrection flow from his lips. So I use this as a picture and come into the pulpit and pray that every week I'll be the exact opposite that I will mount this pulpit in thrilled expectation that Jesus will be here traveling in the greatness of his power mighty to save and that lyrical assurances of the resurrection and the ascension and the power of the spirit will flow from my lips. Then I think of Psalm like Psalm 132 when the Israelites made their ascent to three times a year to Jerusalem they sang these psalms of ascent they were filled with expectation what made them take that difficult journey because they were expecting something and Psalm 132 is a beautiful one they say arise o lord you and the ark of your covenant come to your resting place clothe your priests with salvation so your saints can sing for joy and the reason they prayed that way is because God promised and they hold God to his promise God you said that you have chosen Zion you have desired it for your habitation and you said you will pour out your spirit upon your uh, clothe your priests with salvation so your saints can sing for joy they anticipated that they anticipated a prepared priesthood they anticipated a joyful singing assembly and so i use that every sunday i pray for the worship leaders this weekend i prayed for Solomon and his team that he will be part of the saints on whom god or the priests on whom god will pour out spirit so that the saints you people can sing for joy Now this is another example of asking but it also quickens expectation within my heart. I remind God that he has chosen Rexdale Alliance Church to be his dwelling place. 
So what does that mean for you? Oh, by the way, when he does that, then it maintains that attitude where I don't want to miss what's going on. Because if the Spirit's going to move, I, I want to be sensitive to that when I get up here and pray, before my message, in my benediction, in the conversations afterwards in the lobby, because he's working. And if you have an expected heart, you won't miss it. If you're not expecting anything, it'll be right before your eyes and you won't even see it. So same thing for you, in your central labor of your life, whether it's university, whether it's work, whether it's raising your family at home, whatever it is. Having prayed, asked for the Spirit, having removed the obstacles, what would be like for you to go with expectation? You won't, you're more likely to not miss what the Spirit of God is doing around you. You think, you don't know the place where I work. No, 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 that's exactly the place where you will be vehicles for the Spirit of God to come and be alert to it. So asking, confessing, expecting. And then lastly, again very simply, as simple as asking, is acting. You know, can you imagine me spending all week long praying the way I have and studying and writing the sermon, uh, cleansing my heart, confessing these sins, working up great expectation and then not showing up to preach? That's pretty ridiculous, right? The point of all of that is to actually act and, and do something. And over and over again, my mind kept coming back to this text, Acts chapter 5.32. Peter is saying this, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now, at first sight, this seems like a circular argument. Earlier on, he said, don't go anywhere until the Spirit comes, because you can't do anything until the Spirit comes. Now he's saying, God gives the Spirit to those who obey. So what is it? It's a classic chicken and egg situation. You know, this is all part of the mystery of the intersection between divine responsibility and human responsibility. And mystery in the scripture is not intended for us to figure things out. Mystery in the scripture is to make us worshippers. So we can say to him, I don't understand this, you're bigger than I am. But my interest this morning in this message is not the philosophical and the theological implications of this, but the practical ones, right? Because all about practice, what do we do? So I was asking the Lord to give me a handle on this text. What is Peter saying? That he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. And this picture may help you. If not, ask God to give you some other picture. This is all he gave me. Yeah, think of a car. Yeah? I have a standard transmission. Now, I prefer to standard to an automatic transmission. But I have a standard transmission. And you can get in there and you keep the clutch in neutral. And you start the car and the engine starts up. Now, now you can sit there with the uh, gear in neutral and you can gas it. And it will rev up and it will make a lot of noise. But if you actually put a torque meter on it and measure it, there probably won't be much horsepower coming out of it because there is no resistance. Now, as soon as you put the thing into gear and the car starts moving, actually the engine speed will go down. The noise gets a lot less, but the horsepower demand becomes a lot higher because now it's actually moving. It's sort of like that. When we begin to act, it's like slipping the clutch in. Then the power of the Spirit actually begins to work. And so before that, it may be a lot of noise and nothing happening. When you're actually acting, there may be very little noise and lots of power. That's working. It helped me anyway, but the point is that we need to act. Let me close with a story. Uh, a week ago, Thursday, I left for Edmonton. I was speaking there. Uh, I preached there on Friday night, twice on Saturday. Once. Well, that's the central labor of my life, right? So that's what I was doing. And you know how I don't, I've told you before, I don't like, I, I would much prefer an empty seat when I'm sitting. These days, planes are always full most of the time. So, But some young woman came, sat next to me and immediately put on her earphones and went out to sleep, which was fine. You know, so the question was as good as an empty seat. You know, so I didn't have to talk. I was studying, which was fine. <laughs> on the way back, another young gal came and sat there, even much younger. 
And she was working on math problems all this time. And the reason why I was intrigued by that is that on the day before I left, we'd gone for grandparents' day at my granddaughter's school, and we got to sit in on a class with him, was math. It was a math class. So, he was a granddaughter and math, so it was on my mind. So, it was a little bit of a more natural, easier to get in, uh, connected with her. I asked her why she went to Edmonton. She said, oh, I play volleyball. Well, that's what Rebecca loves to play. So, I got even more interested, you know. Now, notice I had nothing to do with any of this stuff. Only God could place somebody there, just like my granddaughter, doing the stuff that was on my mind already with her, having gone there the previous day, and interested in the same sport. It's all divine initiative. I had nothing to do with it. Without any of these things, I thought the story would have gone differently. So we kept talking. So she said, what did you go to Edmonton for? So I told her, I'm a pastor of a church, and we talked for a few minutes about that. And so that, she went back to her math, and then it gave me an opportunity when she put her book down to say, do you go to church anyway? Well, no, we don't really go to church anyway, but... But I hear the stories of the Bible in my school assembly. And I like the stories. I like the stories and the messages from them. But I have a hard time wrapping my mind around some details. Well, that was a natural, right? So I said, so what kind of things do you have trouble wrapping your mind around? (laughs) And then she told me. And so I had an opportunity to explain to her. I said, here's another way you might want to look at it. And I just asked her a few questions. At the end of it, she said, you know what? I never thought of it that way before. So I asked her if she'd be interested in reading a book, and I gave her a recommendation. Now, you know, I'm not Pastor Sam, but here I am witnessing in a plane, right? <laughs> but the, you, see, you see how naturally the Holy Spirit built the bridges. And once I started walking, it was effortless. Whereas normally I'm not interested in anything like that. And how good of God to give me that experience just before I preach this message. To God be the glory. If we act. So, here are my four words for you. Don't wait. Don't wait because Pentecost has already happened. Ask, confess, expect, and finally act. Let's pray together. Yes, how good of you, God, to do what only you can do so we can then do what you've asked us to. That you might receive the glory and we might receive the joy. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I was looking over the order of service last night before we came in for the service, I was just struck by the sequence of these last two songs that we sang. We began first by asking for His power and for the nations. Then we asked Him to turn our mourning into dancing. That order reflects the priority in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, then give us this day our daily bread. That's my blessing for you. May you be a people that never reverse those priorities. May you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then may all these things be added unto you. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.